As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Dave's front office is open for business. Our guest is one of the most significant people in NBA history, and he never made a bucket or coached a game. But his imprint is everywhere, and his vision has impacted fans around the world, and he's standing by. Dave's Front Office is a production of Pure Hoops Media. Our host is Dave Wolf, who has spent a half a century in every conceivable NBA role, except owner, but he's working on it. He's been a player, assistant coach, head coach, assistant GM, and GM. As a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania, he was once insulted on the court by a ref who called him an Ivy Leaguer. Here's Dave Wall. Welcome to Dave's Front Office, brought to you by Pure Hoops Media. I'm your host, Dave Wall, and I have a very special guest today, Rick Welts. Rick is the current president and chief operating officer for the Golden State Warriors, and will be retiring at the end of this season after 46 incredibly impactful years. He is a legendary executive in the NBA on the business and marketing side. He has served both in the league and office under David Stern and with Seattle, Phoenix, and Golden State. I'm really looking forward to talking with him. Rick, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dave. How are you today? I'm doing good. good. So I want to start with what you called your biggest career break when you became a ball boy with the <laughs> Seattle Supersonics. <laughs> and, um, had you ever thought about what would have happened to your life if perhaps you had not gotten that big break and not become a ball boy? Well, I, I think about it all the time. You know, I, I went to college, uh, University of Washington during Watergate, and I, uh, my real ambition was to kind of save the world through great storytelling. I, I, it's hard for people today to imagine that journalists were actually heroes. Uh, back in those years, they were, uh, they were doing important work and telling great stories. And I thought, you know, I thought that's what I was going to do. So I, I don't know where that would have taken me, but I'm, I'm very happy to have gotten that ball boy job. You know, you worked your way up in the organization and stayed in Seattle for 10 years, including their championship year in 1979. Were you crushed when the Sonics eventually left for Oklahoma City? Uh, the only thing I, you're using past tense. Uh, I would, I'm continually crushed by uh, the Sonics departing Seattle. Uh, it, it just, you know, for me, it's what I grew up with. It was, it was the team I loved, it, what got me involved. I, we won the only professional championship, uh, uh, professional team based in Seattle uh, had won. And yeah, it's, it's a market that needs an NBA team. And I, you know, who knows in my, in my new life, maybe I could be, uh, could be part of making that happen again. Well, that was actually one of the questions I was going to ask you, but what I wanted to ask you before, uh, when that happened, did you, did you swear that day that you would never work for Howard Schultz? <laughs> it's funny. I actually almost went to work for Howard Schultz uh, when, when he owned the Sonics, uh, and uh, we, we didn't end up doing that. But, I, I, you know, Howard, uh, fascinating guy. He, I actually, when I was president of Phoenix Suns, had Howard come and, and do a series one of our speaking series uh in phoenix and i couldn't believe how forthcoming he was about his experience in basketball he just really felt that anybody who could get you to pay five dollars for a cup of coffee could probably pretty much figure out how to get you to buy a basketball ticket and he was so honest in how complicated difficult uh and different running an nba team was than than selling a cup of coffee so yeah, I, I, uh, my heart still breaks. I, I haven't quite forgiven Howard, but, uh, but I think he, he, his heart for most of that time was in the right place. Well, I have to tell you, I was also crushed because I loved Seattle. It was one of the, as a player and a coach, you know, we were on the tour and going into Seattle was always a high point, especially if we had a free day where I could walk around the city. 
And I remember passing the first Starbucks store there. Yeah. And there was a line and I, I couldn't understand what the line was about for a, a cup of coffee when I could go to the Pike Place, you know, market right next door and get a great cup of Joe for 25 cents. Yep. Marketing, marketing is pretty important sometimes. Yeah. Do you see um, expansion in the near future for the NBA, Rick? You know, for the first time in 20 years, I think the answer to the question is maybe, right? I think that... Uh, that there is for the first time in a long, long time, uh, potential interest from NBA owners to think about adding maybe two additional teams. Adam Silver has spoken about this a few times. Uh, he's also kind of put a stake in the ground for what a, what a team might cost if that would happen. I believe that his starting point was something like $2.5 billion, which- Yeah, just uh, some pocket change, that's all. Yeah, yeah. yeah pocket change. Uh, but I do think, I. I I do think for the first time there's an openness to it. Not not any big momentum yet, but I think um, you know it's always a good union uh, story, right? It's always great to talk to the players about creating 30 new jobs, uh, and I think that that's you know may come into play at some point. And I and I do think that there might be some things the NBA could do with the money generated uh, with that that might be a little different than historically they've done with expansion fees. So it, there, there may be a point in time, I'm hoping there is uh, in the not too distant future when, when that became a, becomes a reality. Um, to me, Seattle would be one of, the, one of the names that would be right at the top of the list or certainly among the top two. Would you agree with that? 100%, has to be. And, and knowing that, if, if, if that was true, just like you said before, would that be something you would really, you know, maybe come out of your retirement for a little <laughs> bit to try and help that happen? I would, I've already indicated to the commissioner that if, uh, if there was an opportunity to, I don't, I don't, I will never go be president of another NBA team. I, that that uh, I've done for 20 years and it's been amazing, but, but I, I would, uh, it would be incredibly personally satisfying to me to be, uh, of whatever assistance I could be in, in trying to make that happen. You know, I don't know if you know it, but I was um, I was in uh, an assistant coach with Miami during their first three, four years of expansion. And the expansion experience is just phenomenal because it's unlike anything else because you, you come in, now Seattle might be a little different because they had a team there before, but you come in with no established traditions. So everything you do is sort of a first time type of thing. And the energy from everybody coming in was just unbelievable. And, and one day we came in in the office and we found out there were no wastebaskets. And so uh, three days later, we got a delivery of like 60 wastebaskets because there were six or seven people that took it upon themselves because the requirements of who did what, everybody just ordered wastebaskets. It was, it was one of my probably most enjoyable times in the NBA was the, the time I spent there. Well, it was, I, I remember going to that old Miami arena and there was an incredible energy around it. And you, and you created this instant rivalry with Orlando, right? Yeah. Between, uh, Pat Williams and Orlando and Billy Cunningham and Ray right. Chappelle and uh, Miami, you, you guys artificially created this big <laughs> rivalry with two teams that never played a game before. So it was pretty yeah, great. And it, it started <laughs> off, we lost our, um, we sat there one time and Ronnie Rothstein was the first coach and Ronnie had come from Detroit, very successful with Chuck Daly. And Tony Fiorentino had been an assistant at Iona, I think. And Tony was a good friend, but Tony didn't have any pro experience. So we went on a little head coaches retreat for a couple of days, like a lot of teams do. And at the very end of the retreat, we're going to leave. We have our little pocket schedules there of the Heat's first, um, you know, schedule. And they put us in the West, which was really hilarious to me. And so Tony says to Ronnie and me, he says, hey, let's figure out, let's check off how many wins we're going to have. And I had been on a number of bad teams, Rick, so I had a little <laughs> dose of reality. So they're looking at the schedule and everything. And finally, Tony says, uh, Ronnie, how many wins you got? And Ronnie goes, um, I got 36. How many do you have? And Tony says, I got 34. And they turned to me and I said, Ronnie, if you win 17 games, you're going to get coached. <laughs> and we actually lost our first 17 games. Oh my. It was just, and at one point, I think we were two and 42. Oh. And, and I thought Ronnie was going to have to be protected. We couldn't put him on anything above the first floor. I thought in a hotel, yeah. you know, so. I, uh, my, my, uh, First year as public relations director of the Sonics, uh, we had fired Bill Russell as our coach. And hi, I bet even you can't remember who replaced Bill Russell as coach of the Sonics. His only, 
His only claim to fame was he was Bill Russell's cousin. Oh, so no, that's a good question. I don't. Bob, Bob Hopkins. Bob Hopkins. That's right. And we, uh, we, in our first 22 games, managed to lose 17 of the first 22, not unlike your experience. So fired Bob Hopkins and our director of player personnel, Lenny Wilkins, took over coaching and we went to the finals that year. So miracles do happen. Yeah, a little uh, different. Yeah. And it was, a, uh, it was that one of my most memorable years, actually. Well, you got, you got your first Ringwood Seattle in 1979. And then 35 years later, you added three more on, in five years in the finals to the hall. Not a bad hall, Rick. Do you, do you think fans really understand how hard it is to just even win one title? No, and, and there's so many people who have given so much to our league, whether it's players or coaches or on the management side, who never, ever, ever get to experience that. I think I read an amazing stat just a couple of days ago that of the remaining teams uh, in the playoffs, uh, uh, none of them had claimed the last 37 NBA championships. And so like it, it's so elusive and so hard. And the mag when the magic does happen, it it's so fleeting uh, that it that it really is uh, something not to be taken for granted, savor it every day. I want to pivot a little bit today about your journey to acknowledging that you were gay. Um, were there times when you you got close to coming out and then kind of backed away um, because maybe of fear of, of how it would affect your career or maybe how your coworkers would look at you? Uh, for me, it was always the unknown of how it would affect my career, right? I, I love sports. You know, my dad and I, that, that was our currency. We started going to Sonics games in, you know, 1967 when the team got there, University of Washington football games. That's where we had our conversations. That's where our connection was. And I loved it, but I, I, I couldn't, I was, I was caught in this place where there was nobody else that I could see who was like me involved in sports in a significant way. And just that unknown, you know, what I, I want to do this. I, I want this to be my career. I, I, I love it more than anything. Would I be sacrificing that in some way, shape or form? So I never really, you know, until, you know, 2011, when I, when this crazy New York Times story uh, appeared, uh, never really seriously considered it. I, it was a an inflection point in my life. I had uh, lost my dad. Uh, my mom been diagnosed with lung cancer. Uh, long-time relationship that I had uh, was breaking up mainly because I couldn't bring the most important person in my life into my work life by my choice. Um, so I really had, I kind of reached a point where I just decided like, this is, you know, it's time for me, but, but, but just, you know, that barrier of there being nobody out there I could, I could look to and, and feel assured that this could go okay is, was really what held me back. I, I, this may sound like a strange question, but how did you feel after you did that, after you came out? Um, what, what emotion, I mean, what emotions did, did you go through? Uh, you know, I think maybe relief more than, more than anything. Um, you know, the process, it was, you know, a pretty thoughtful process that, that led to that. And, uh, you know, I'd prepared myself for, I don't know, 10%, you know, really negative reaction, 90% probably good. Um, you know, the thousand, I still in my office here have binders with thousands of emails I actually printed out uh, who people who actually found my email address or wrote me a letter. And there's not, a, I, it sounds unreal. There was not a single negative response. It was by far the opposite of, you know, parents of children of uh, former coworkers, um, just extraordinary. So I, I there was relief, there was surprise. And, uh, you know, I was in New York City when it happened. I was president of the Phoenix Suns and uh, flew back a few days later. I remember walking into that office for the first time and what a different feeling that was uh, to me where I could bring my 100% authentic uh, self to work in a way that I'd never been able to before. So you come out in 2011 and you become really the the first high-level gay executive in team sports anywhere. And you, in some ways, you become the role model that you were looking for, you know, when, when before you came out. Um, do you still feel a responsibility going forward for trying to help a lot of the, the people still trying to figure it out? 
Yeah, thanks for asking that, Dave. Uh, yes, and and it you know I, I, that's what I signed on for. Um, and there, there really isn't a week that goes by that I don't uh, hear from somebody you know in our industry, whether it's at the college level, professional level, who you know is having their own struggle and trying to figure out their own path and whether or not, just as I was, whether or not they can be successful, you know. Uh, in this industry that we're in, which is, you know, men's professional sports still trails badly uh, our society in general. Women's professional sports, maybe not surprisingly, as usual, is uh, is kind of head of men's professional sports. But, but, but even having those conversations, David, has really uh, served me well. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know if you remember a few years ago we had awarded we the NBA had awarded the All Star uh, to game to Charlotte and. Right. Uh, Charlotte, the city had passed uh, after that some really progressive anti-discriminatory legislation that was not received well in the state capital of North Carolina. And as a result, uh, the state legislature not only uh, invalidated what Charlotte had done, but prevented going forward any cities from, from passing such kind of legislation. And the bill was called HB2 and very discriminatory. And the NBA had a, a huge decision to make. There was a lot of pressure uh, and focus on what the NBA would do at that point. So we ended up at a board of governors meeting in Las Vegas where this was gonna be discussed with the owners. And you know, this is a team we love. Michael Jordan owns it. You know, uh, my dear friend, Fred Whitfield was the president. And there was a conversation about before the meeting, Adam came up to me and said, you know, I'm gonna give you the last word on this, which he gave me no warning about. So at the end of the discussion, he called on me and I actually could say, you know, look at the owners and say, look, I'm, I'm in touch with people in your organizations who, you know, are not comfortable uh, coming out. And, and I just want you to think about those people when you're making this decision, because they're going to look at you and, and, and want to see some leadership here and, and how you feel about this issue. And, and uh, eventually, you know, at that point, we took the game out of Charlotte, uh, through a lot of effort changes in the law, we were able to go back to Charlotte a few years later, but it gave me a voice and a standing that, that otherwise I wouldn't had, have had. You know, the, the NBA and the WNBA, I think, have been in the front of the curve when it comes to embracing diversity and social causes uh, compared to a lot of the other sports leagues, obviously. How gratifying has it been to, to see this type of social responsibility from the two leagues? Well, from the players in the two leagues in particular, right? Uh, I mean, the, the leadership that the players uh, have chosen to take with the support, I think, of the league and the teams is really a, a point of pride. Um, but it's, you know, listen, I, I'm, I'm also a realist. I, I've had a conversation with some people over the weekend who decided that they don't care about the NBA anymore because, you know, of what happened around in the bubble around Black Lives Matter. And that it seems like to them that the NBA, you know, only cares about that issue and isn't really, uh, as mainstream as they wish it was. So it, it's not without peril. And here in, you know, I'm here in San Francisco where, where yeah. you know, when Steve Kerr talks about gun control, they have parades for him down the street. Yeah, but, ovations, yeah. yeah. But, you know, in San Antonio or Oklahoma City, you know, it's a very different audience. And so, you know, we want to be a play. I mean, for me, it's all about everybody's welcome here, right? Every Everybody is a part of what we're doing and everybody should feel welcome in our arenas and in our organizations and that's you know i think that's really what all the conversations are about you know i want to jump back to the sonics for a second um when you started out with them too i, I love the story i heard about your beginning relationship with bill russell how he used to shout white boy down the hall and and have you either get him coffee or uh, you know do a lot of odd jobs but i think your willingness to do whatever russell needed you to do you know, must have made a strong impression on him because you've remained friends to this day. And and people always see Russell as, uh, I don't know if it's just his media, you know, that does it this way, but uh, he's as being aloof and unapproachable and suffering fools not very easily. But you got to know him. What is he really like? You know, it's, it's interesting to know somebody as you, over decades, right? Because right. you really, you you do see changes. And I, and I don't know that the description you gave was very inaccurate. Uh, you know, when he was a player, there's, 
there, if you read about him, if you know about his history, there's a lot of scars there, right? There's a lot of scars in his experience of being such a prominent black player in a league and uh, a fan base that didn't necessarily appreciate it. And so, you know, there were reasons behind it. And I've seen him, you know, become much more integrated as part of our NBA experience and work for the league and, and become, you know, be willing to be celebrated in Boston in ways that he never was before, you know, he's, he's, you know, I'm getting interviewed next week about his impending hall of fame induction, which is kind of a joke, right? Because right. Who, who should have, who should have been the main statue in the hall of fame? Somebody, maybe somebody who won 11 championships in 13 years. Uh, but it, but it's, it's, it's really touching, I think, to see the types of things that he's involved with and still today, like his, you know, his, speaking of social justice, his stances on, on everything that's happened in our society over the last couple of years have been, I, I think, really thoughtful and, and really impactful. And, you know, I think he's, he's at a point in his life where he's made peace with a lot of demons that, that bothered him for a very long time is much more open and receptive to, to people in his life than, than maybe he was when I was just the white boy down the hall. <laughs> you know, I, um, if you make a career in the NBA, especially a long career like you and I have made, um, and you're a white person, uh, you gain a real life education, I think, in, in what it really means to be black in our society. And, you know, you've spoken how humbling it was to learn that you had no idea what it was like to really be black, even though like a lot of people, you thought you did. Yeah. And then, like myself, you, you hear the stories from teammates, you hear the stories from guys you work with in coaching staff or coworkers in, in, in your, your team you're with or in the league office or something um, over how they grew up, their family stories, drugs, gangs, all the things that I know I never had to worry about growing up as a white kid. And I'm sure a lot of them was things you didn't have to worry about. So how do, how do hearing these stories change your perspective? Um, I had a head start, um, which I'm very grateful for. Uh, one of the things that's happened uh, kind of in these stories about my retirement is I, I often throughout my career have cited my fourth grade teacher. Um, I went to an all white grade school in the Magnolia district of Seattle. Um, and we, as a group, the 30 of us kids moved from first grade to second grade together. And we always knew who our next teacher was because they, they had a consistency to that. But our fourth, who, when we were going into fourth grade, that teacher retired and we had no idea all summer like who our teacher would be. I remember going to school um, the first morning of, of class and just an electricity on the playground. When I walked in the playground, it's like, what's going on? It's like, we, we have a black man who's our, gonna be our teacher. And boy, you've never seen more 10 of 30 kids on the first day of school in your life. First time any, probably any of us had had a significant interaction uh, with a black man, right? It was his first job, first teaching job. His name's Frank Jones. And uh, he became, for whatever reason, I was mesmerized by him. And, and I, even after fourth grade, I'd go back in after fifth grade and do you know, whatever I could do, chores around his, school, his classroom just to be around him. And I remember the day Kennedy was shot. Um, it happened in Seattle around a little before lunchtime, and, but nobody talked to us. Like we didn't really know what had happened. And so I went into Frank Jones's classroom afterwards. It's like, okay, like, what are we gonna do today? And, he looked at me like, don't you know what happened today? Well, I, I heard that the president was shot and he sat me down. And I think for the first time I realized how different our life experience colors events that we encountered, right? That what that meant to him that day was so different than what you know, an 11 year old privileged white kid would feel that day. And, and so I always felt advantaged by that. Um, and that even through the Black Lives Matter uh, last summer, you know, I just exactly what you said. I, I have people I work with that came forward to tell their stories uh, who are black, who these are things that are happening in 2020, not things that happened in 1960. And the power of sharing those personal experiences and the education that it provides others who can't have them because we're not in a situation where we would encounter the same things has been so meaningful and so educational, so humbling. I think um, one of one of the 
the things that we can pull out of what's happened in our country in the last couple of years as a, as a positive. And I think one of the things that happens too is a lot of those stories never get beyond just the NBA community. So they're not out you know, in, in the world at large. And so a lot of people aren't exposed to them. They see players making a lot of money and things like that. And they assume their life was pretty easy or what do they have to complain about or, or things like that. And, and so, but like, uh, you know, you sit there and I've, I've heard stories of some of the players, uh, they were living in their cars, you know, they didn't have any food on the table. I never forget, um, I was playing in Houston with Calvin Murphy and Calvin was quite a character, but Calvin told me growing up, the only lunch he had was a syrup sandwich. It was maple syrup in between two slices of Wonder Bread. That was his basic nutritional lunch, you know, every day. So there's still, you know, obviously a lot of work to be done, but maybe we've made some progress going forward um, and hopefully we can continue. Um, so now you get a job with the NBA during a time, Rick, when the NBA behemoth was more like an NBA mouse in terms of um, sponsors and advertisers. Um, it was going to be an incredible challenge. What was your interview like with David Stern? <laughs> so I had no idea who he was. He, uh, I, I was working, I had left the Sonics at a little PR uh, sports marketing company in Seattle with a partner and I got, had a call little phone message on my desk one day that said this guy got called with a NBA and recognized his NBA phone number. I called him up and he introduced himself as David Stern, said he was the new uh, vice, he, he was the executive vice president for business and legal affairs and had been charged with starting to build a business at the NBA, which, you know, prior to that point, we scheduled games and assigned referees and that's pretty much all <laughs> the NBA did. Uh, so I, I got to go fly to New York City, which was thrilling. I got to spend a night in the Waldorf Astoria Hotel, which was thrilling, and walk over to the Olympic Tower, where the NBA still is, and sit down with this guy I didn't know. And, uh, you know, I think our half-hour interview probably went at least a couple of hours. And uh, uh, as it turned out, like, I checked all the boxes for him. I was, I was young. I was passionate about the NBA. And probably most importantly, I was really cheap. <laughs> uh, so he could he could recruit me to be the first I know it sounds crazy the first this is 1982 the first person ever to go out and talk yeah. to companies about investing marketing dollars into the NBA we we didn't do that like yeah. that wasn't something the league did so uh, he found you know my only experience was Seattle we were the first professional team we won a championship you know, our only problem was whose money to take. The, the arenas, arenas were full, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it was it was quite a uh, a bait and switch he gave me because the uh, what I discovered when I got when I moved my life to New York City is what a, a really uh, tattered property, damaged property that the NBA was. I, I, I if I'd had any idea, I would have uh, bought a round trip ticket and gone back to. Seattle, but I had, kind of had no choice. I was there and I had to make the best of it. Were there two different David Stearns, a, a personal one and a professional one? Yeah, great. Great insight. Um, yeah, I mean, his obviously, as most people know, his public persona, uh, you know, has a reputation of being, shall we say, uh, a little abrupt and, and, and loud sometimes. Um, uh, and I think fascinating to watch him throughout his career. I got there, I was the 35th employee total, counting the mailroom of the NBA. And as he became commissioner in 1984, um, you know, he had put together a group of, of young people who were going to be kind of his key people going forward. I was lucky enough to be one of those, but he had a he had an absolutely personal relationship with every person different than the relationship he had with anyone else. You, you hear that about people like Bill Clinton, but that, you know, that, that was what he had. You had a unique relationship with him. That was incredible for me, you know, my greatest mentor. And, you know, he, he, you know, you'd be in meetings during the day where it would get really loud and not nice and bad things were said. And he got threw you out of his office. And then, back when we had home telephones, you know, the phone would ring at 10 o'clock at night and, uh, you know, it would be David and he'd, he'd talk to you very differently for half an hour. And by the time that, that phone call was over, I, I couldn't wait to get up the next morning and knock down doors, you know, to, to, to make the NBA successful. So 
you know, he, he, he had to evolve that style as the organization grew. And, and I think that was one of his, you know, for him personally, a big frustration because when you have a thousand people working for you, you can't have the kind of attention to detail and, and personal relationship with every single person to know how to get the best out of them. But it was amazing to be a part of that and see him evolve as, a, as I think, the greatest commissioner in the history of sports. So, you know, you go to work for him and, and now you come up with this um, all-star weekend concept. What was, what was the driving force behind that as you were thinking creatively, how do we, how do we make some kind of big splash? Uh, my incentive was I wanted to keep my job and I wasn't being very successful at going out and convincing sponsors to, to be involved with the NBA. Um, but Stern had been elected commissioner, but had not yet taken office. He was, we were going to, to uh, Denver, 1984, right. um, for the All-Star Game. And he had been elected in late 83, but Larry O'Brien was still going to be commissioner till the end of the All-Star Weekend, All-Star Game. Right. And as you know, the All-Star Game then, you know, we showed up on Saturday morning in the city, had a, had a, a bad banquet with a really bad comedian on Saturday night. Went to the game on Sunday and then everybody went home. We all fit in one hotel. Right. <laughs> uh, it was a very different time. So he, Stern had said one of the most important things to him was getting back in touch with the history of the game. He, he felt we had no photo archive. We had no video archive of our games. There's no video of Will Chamberlain scoring 100 points in Hershey, Pennsylvania in 1962. And he felt as stewards of the brand that we needed to get back in touch with the history and the and the people who made our history. So that was in my mind. We're going to Denver. You probably remember Carl Shearer, who recently sure. passed away. Uh, they had a great ABA history before their NBA uh, uh, entry. And the famous 1976 ABA All-Star Game took place in Denver, Colorado, uh, where Julia Serving took off from the free throw line and dunked the basketball, something no one had ever imagined uh, or had seen before. And uh, so Carl came to town in November. This was before the February game. Now we plan years ahead, right? But this was a few months before. Hey, what are we gonna do for All-Star? He's like, well, I think we ought to do, like recreate that ABA slam dunk contest at halftime. I'm like, oh, Carl, like, we're on CBS. I think we have red on round ball at halftime. Like we're, we, don't, we don't have any time to, <laughs> we don't have any time at halftime. And it's like, oh, okay, well, geez, that would have been a good idea. Then I went home and I turned on my TV and I saw this baseball old timers game going on where these 60 year old guys were up playing baseball in Washington, DC. One hit a home run over the Cracker Jack sign. I'm like, I got it. Like ran in to see Stern the next morning. It's like, why don't we do like a second day? Like we'll do Saturday, we'll, we'll have an old timers game. You wanna bring back all these players, the history of the game. And then we do a, a slam dunk contest to, to yeah, kind of in celebration of the ABA heritage of of uh, Denver and you know he said I like it let's go talk to the commissioner and I got a total like there's no way you're this is going to happen on my last weekend in the office and then Stern, I don't know what happened Stern's magic came back a week later and said that you know the commissioner says it's okay you can do it but it can't cost the NBA a penny <laughs> I didn't know that <laughs> and you can't embarrass me on my last weekend in office so with that with that support, um, was able to go out and find some sponsors to take care of our costs. Julius Irving came back just as a blessing at the end of his career to participate right. in the slam dunk. We had all these incredible names in the lobby of the Brown Palace Hotel. There was, you know, Elgin Baylor over there and there was Oscar Robertson over there who'd been invited back for the first time ever. What unfolded that day was, was magical, you know, and luck played a big part of it. Uh, Sports Illustrated gave us pages and pages of coverage. They never covered an all-star game before. Uh, the media was ecstatic with all these play, you know, great names around the stories that came from that. And voila, Cern becomes commissioner the next day as all of a sudden he's like, this is the new NBA, right? So, uh, you know, it, it was a, a lot of luck, um, you know, uh, and, and, and actually a lot of fun in retrospect. I can't believe what it's turned into today. Did, uh, did David at least give you a pat on the back and a couple attaboys, you know? Like, uh, no, I think he had another project the next day. <laughs> he, wasn't, he wasn't a big attaboy guy. Yeah. <laughs> so next comes up the 1992 Olympics, the dream team, and you create a marketing campaign for them. Um, was, was that the, the success of that? Was that the springboard for the NBA to market 
internationally now? Yeah, take the words out of my mouth. I, th I think that two weeks in Barcelona really moved the NBA's agenda ahead 20 years around the world. Um, you know, little kids who, you know, came into our game 20 years later that had their first experience with basketball by watching, you know, Michael Jordan or Charles Barkley or Patrick Ewing or whoever uh, in that dream team. You know, it's so hard to put it into perspective. If you remember 1996, it was, there was some controversy in the United States about sending this team to the Olympics. Like our, our wonderful American sense of fair play was somehow being violated. You know, we didn't feel that way in swimming or gymnastics, but <laughs> it wasn't very American to, to go send a team that was going to beat everybody up so much. But in the rest of the world, um, it, it really did that. It really planted seeds that are still being harvested, I think, for, for what basketball could be on the international stage. And listen, there will never ever be a group of athletes assembled in any sport that, that I think matches the talent that was on display there in 1992 in Barcelona. Well, you know, I, I didn't think it was just the talent because clearly uh, this was a change from the college rosters and the college coaches. And I think there was a lot of like pushback behind the scenes yeah. that college people didn't want to let go of it, you know, and, and they wanted to kind of finally have a mix. And I think David or whoever just said, no, it's going to be all NBA people. Um, but I thought the, the players who were there were so representative of what basketball could be and what you could be as a person. They walked the streets of the Ramblas in Barcelona. They, they took pictures. They took, you know, they were like just, okay, he was a great basketball player, but I walked down the street with Charles Barkley or Larry Bird or something. I thought we couldn't have found any better ambassadors. They didn't want to just play and go back to the hotel. No, you're, you're so right. And, uh... You know, I will never replicate anything close to that, but I will, like Stern, Stern and USA Basketball did decide the graduating Christian Leitner would be That's the right. college, you know, post-college represent, pre-NBA right. pre representative on that team. He didn't, he, Christian didn't get a lot of playing time on the. Uh, they gave a breadcrumb to the college. <laughs> um, you move on then and, and you and Val Ackerman usher in the WNBA. And it's, it's really, um, a league that has embraced diversity. And, and many of the players, as you mentioned before, have, have come out as gay and the league has supported that, including you know, marketing to the LGBTQ community successfully. Um, was there pushback from the owners over the original idea to form a woman's league? Uh, you know, this is where you know, Stern has a very different leadership style than say um, the more modern, uh, Adam Silver. I think Stern always had the organizational chart upside down. He thought the owners worked for him. Uh, and I think Adam has a very different view of inclusion and, and including owners and decision-making. So, uh, you know, Adam, uh, you know, we, was there at the same time, but, but David just kind of willed it. Like, this is, this is what we're going to do. We're, we're going to do it. So I, I don't think so. I think he, we had made a great business case for it. It was a point in time we had supported the 1990s. The, the American women couldn't win a gold medal anymore uh, in the Olympics. Uh, and we were looking toward 1996. Um, and so the NBA funded uh, this 1996 women's national team that, that traveled around the world for a year, coached by current NCAA champion coach, Tara Vanderveer. Uh, and I think, they're, I think they were 56 and 0, traveling the world, preparing for the Olympics, and went into Atlanta and just you know, won the gold medal running away. And it set the stage to launch the league. But, you know, your point about pushback, we, we, we got so much wrong, Dave. Like we thought like, you know, all these should be run by NBA teams because we already have this infrastructure. So that'll work. And all those fans that go to NBA games will, you know, automatically go to, to WNBA games in the summertime. And that, you know, that first year, the first couple of years, we really discovered what a different audience we right. had and, and what a influence the LGBT community was in that audience. And I remember, you know, marketing meetings, like bringing the teams together and nobody knew what we had to ask ourselves, like, what are these questions? Like, well, like, if it does it turn off some of our fans if two women embraced 
you know, in a game or on the kiss cam? Like, and you know, you had to ask these questions like, well, no, it, it, like if it's okay for two people to do that in an NBA environment, that must be okay to happen in a WNBA environment. Yeah, 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 of course. Yeah, that's okay. But we had to kind of get our arms around it too. And, and of course, wanting to be inclusive where, again, everybody is welcome here. Um, but it, but it, there were some real growing. We we got a lot wrong, um, got a lot right, and here we are, 25 years later, with the you know the longest running women's professional sports league in, in our history, and I think a inflection point for that league where the the future has never looked brighter for the W. Um, you know, you, you, we mentioned before talking about um, many of the women in the WNBA have come out as gay. Um, if you look at the NBA, um, there have only been two players, um, John Amici, who I was an assistant when John was with us in Orlando, and Jason Collins. Why do you, why do you think that difference still exists? Because if you just look at the statistical population, uh, two out of 470 is, is, is not going to be what, it, what the stats right. tell you. No, that's right. And, and I just, you know, we forget sometimes as we wise mature adults like these are these are 20 something human beings right who have been treated very differently because of their extraordinary athletic talent than any other normal kid in fact some ways their upbringing has been very unique in in so many ways and we give them a very short period of time to generate income from the one thing in their life that they've been the best at doing right their professional careers are very short so you know i i think you know, I'm surprised actually um, that we haven't had other players come out since Jason, but but in some ways I'm not. I the pressures that they're under, the 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 people that surround them, and and the urgency to take advantage of their economic opportunity while they can. You know, I I, I there's a guy by the name of Tom Tolbert, former NBA player, at a radio yeah. talk show host. Yeah, radio talk show host here in San Francisco. You know, he. I've been on his show a few times and, and one of his theories is, look, I don't, I don't think players today would have any issue worrying about what the reaction of their teammates would be, but maybe to your earlier point about the fragility of creating a championship team uh, and, you know, the chemistry involved in that and how delicate that is, that's, that a player, you know, especially if it was a big time player who decided to take that step could will, would bring such enormous attention uh, and potential disruption into that locker room just because it would be such a big story and be covered so extensively. And and I think, you know, Tom's view, and I think it's kind of interesting, just the, I don't want to be the guy to disrupt that chemistry. You know, I don't want to be the guy that, that kind of threw our, our team into a different place just because of the over amount of attention that I'm getting. Um, but I don't know. I think it'll happen. I think it could happen tomorrow. Uh, you know, those players are there. Um, and, and if it does, I think it would, again, make it easier for those who would follow. But, but it, is, it is kind of a head scratcher to me that, that, uh, that no one has chosen publicly to take that step since, uh, since Jason did. Will you, um, will you tell the story of the cop who stopped you for speaking <laughs> after you found out that Jason Collins came out? Uh, so uh, there's a there's a big time agent uh, who's now an administrator named Arn Tellum who represented a lot of players, sure. including uh, including Jason Collins. His he, his agency was part of the Washerman Group, and Casey Washerman's a very close personal friend of mine. And I, it was early in the morning in San Francisco. I think around seven o'clock, phone rang, and it was Casey. He was like, "That was odd." So hey, I just want to give you a heads up of what's going to happen today. The story's going to break that that Jason Collins is going to come out as gay. It's like, oh my god, like I can't believe this. Um, so I'm hurriedly trying to uh, get ready for work, and and you know my phone keeps ringing. Other people who are hearing this, you know that this is going to happen are calling me, and and where I live is right at one end of the Bay Bridge. I had to drive all the way over the Bay Bridge to get to my office in Oakland at the time. And just as I'm getting on the on-ramp, I have my phone up to my ear and I see a policeman right next to me kind of point at me and the lights go on. Like, oh. So I have a whole drive of shame over the Bay Bridge, right, with, this, with these lights behind me. I pull over when I get over and the policeman comes up and I go, you, you got me. Like, yeah, he, I said, I just, I can tell you, like, 
you know, why, like I'm, I happen to be president of the Warriors because I know who you are. And I say, and, and like, I just got the news that it's like this player, Jason Collins is gonna come out as gay today. And the guy looked at me and he just said, wow. Like I, I'm a policeman who was born and raised in, in San Francisco and that's really gonna happen. He's like, yeah, he goes, oh, that's awesome. Like, okay, you're lucky day, go on. <laughs> that's such a great story. He almost got me a ticket, but he also saved me from a ticket. <laughs> yeah, that's a great story. Um, in the past couple of years, you know, mental health issues have become more prominent uh, in the sports community. Kevin Love, DeMar DeRozan, uh, Paul George, just to name a few, have brought attention with their continuing personal struggles. And a week ago, um, Naomi Osaka pulls out of the French Open um, uh, because she's been experiencing depression since she beat Serena Williams, you know, and now has uh, a lot of anxiety when she faces the media. You know, you you were on the PR side in that position. Have, have you ever given some thought lately to, is there a solution to make this a, a a, a better situation for a player or, or any of the players that have these these issues that need to be dealt with because they don't they don't find a way to get help in the situation from the media certainly. Yeah, no, you're on to I think such an important topic. Uh, I you know when I first read you know Kevin Love's uh, personal story, it was it was like incredibly courageous and 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 yes, the Naomi's thing this last couple weeks got me thinking about it a lot. I, I talked to Raymond Ritter, our kind of legendary uh, media relations person about this a lot. Um, I don't know what the answer is, but I do think we're gonna see some changes, you know, and, and some of it is gonna intersect with because of what we've been through the last year and a half with the pandemic. So we have had to really separate the face-to-face -face, uh, relationship between members of the media and our players just for health protocol reasons, right? So the way we're talking to each other right now pretty much has been the way that our players have been talking to the media and the players don't mind it. Players don't mind the intrusion of not having reporters in the locker room, not having, you know, that constant uh, back and forth with reporters the way they did. But, but I also recognize the importance of the storytelling that the media does in, in growing the game of basketball and how helpful it is to our players and coaches and, in, in making our enterprise successful. So we have to find, we have to find a more civilized way for that to happen. And media now means, you know, somebody, somebody who's got a podcast, right? It doesn't, it doesn't mean it's NBC, ESPN, or, or somebody like that. So, you know, we may get a little more focused on who we're giving the access to, but, but I do think it's, I don't have the answer, but I do think it's, it's an important and evolving story that we're going to we're going to see some changes over the next few years we, um, we mentioned adam silver before and you knew adam when you were working uh with david and they definitely have distinct different personalities but what do you what do you think are the biggest challenges for adam and the league going forward now um i think a couple come to mind right away one is uh kind of the disruption that's gone on in the media environment and our traditional way of distributing our games via broadcast um you know i think uh, it, we're going to have a completely different model 10 years from now uh, on how we watch live games um obviously big transition mobiles become a bigger and bigger part of it but the big media companies, you know, continue to have place great value in live sports because they're they they amass the largest live audiences of any kind of programming. So there's still great value on the traditional media side. But as young people grow up consuming their media in completely different ways, we have to be able to be in front of them with things like our game broadcasts, uh, the way they consume their media, which is not on network television or probably on cable television. So I think Adams. Uh, he has an advantage in that we're on the content side. So we have incredibly valuable content on the distribution side. A lot of people are gonna live and die uh, based on successfully being able to carve out a piece of the market, but live sports will be a really important component going forward. And so I think media distribution, I think sports gambling uh, is, is going to be, be very big focus for the league going forward. Adam was the first commissioner to come out really uh, supporting sports uh, gambling in, in a regulated way to really protect the sport and to generate more engagement for people uh, that might not otherwise be interested in our games. And I think 
you know, we're making sporadic progress on a state-by-state -state basis there, but but how that's going to evolve, will it evolve like it has in the UK or other countries or, or will the Americans have a very different system? But it's a great opportunity, uh, I think, for sports to, to build its audience, to grow its audience, but it's gonna be a really interesting path to get there. Do you worry a little bit with the gambling side that for instance, you know, you'll have fans, they're, they're gonna be using their phone and all of a sudden there'll be more uh, ways to bet on something. It'll be, oh, will Devin Booker's next play be a turnover or a jump shot? You know, and, and you'll have these little micro bets going on where fans almost stop watching the game. They're just, you know, trying to figure out which bet they want to place. You know, I'm, I'm buying Adam's story that it actually creates more engagement. You know, the fans will watch more. They'll be more interested if, if they have some other, some additional reason to be interested in the game. I guess we'll find out. I, I do think it's going to happen. I think it's going to be part of our broadcasts. I think it's going to be integrated into that. And, you know, the, the theory is that it, complete visibility into uh, gambling prevents, you know, misbehavior because you can't, you, you, you have complete visibility into what's going on. And that's why Adam's been so uh, adamant about, uh, you know, us controlling the data so that we have access to see everything that's going on and can make sure there are no irregularities. So it, it's it's a brave new world out there, but it's like a lot of things Americans experience, it's, it's, old, it's old hat in the UK and other places. Like this is just like, what are you talking about? Of course you do that. Like, you know, you it takes us, it takes us a little bit longer to get our arms around some of these things, but I, I, think, I think it's really inevitable. Rick, you moved from the NBA front office, league office to Phoenix as president and chief operating officer. What, what, are the, what are the marketing challenges that are different with like a, an individual team as opposed to the league office? Because it seems like it's a, it's a smaller stage, but the teams have many business entities that most fans don't even really understand or know. I love your questions, Dave. Uh, I, I actually, what, what would make me really happy if we had more people at teams who'd worked at the league and more people at the league who'd work for teams because the pressures uh, and the problems you're dealing with are should seem the same. They're so different. And I think it's, you know, it, it's hard to understand if you're at a team what the league is going through when they make decisions and vice versa. So, um, you know, I describe, uh, you know, I love my time at the league, uh, it, but it's very corporate. It's very predictable. Half the teams are going to win tonight. Half the teams are going to lose tonight. Somebody's going to win the championship. Uh, it always happens every year. Uh, at a team, I describe You're it as not really rooting for one team or the other in the league office. Yeah. Exactly. So if you're the kind of person like I am, maybe you are, who actually can, can manage the stress of being completely emotionally attached to one team, I describe the league office as kind of like this. I describe being with a team as like this. Right. And some people are cut out for that and some people are not. Our product is human, so it's not predictable. It's there's things the bad things happen, good things happen. And that's why people love us. But if you're cut out for kind of seeing everything you've worked so hard to do put on display in front of a live audience, in front of 18,000 people, and have them vote thumbs up or thumbs down on how you're doing. Uh, if you're that kind of person, there's nothing at the league office that really substitutes for that, that, that real emotional involvement. So I always knew I would get back to a team and I, and I, on balance, I think, enjoy that life more, but it's a, it's a very, very different experience. So now you, you spend uh, almost a decade with Phoenix and then you move back to Northern California and there's an opportunity to join the Warriors. You have a meeting with, um, you know, Joe LaCobe and, and Peter Guber, they they bought the team for a paltry $450 million, you know, uh, which was the highest price, I think, at the time. Mm -hmm. um, what was your, what, how did the opportunity come about to join them? What was your first meeting with them like? Uh, so I, it was in Atherton at Joe, Joe's house, and Joe and Peter were there, and uh, we'd been introduced by a third party we'd never met before. I'd watched them from a distance since they bought the team. That first year, they really just sat back and uh, didn't make any changes because uh, they wanted to see what they had, evaluate what they had. Um, and we sat down and just immediately connected. Um, I think uh, they're the owners that uh, you want to have your, you want your favorite team to be owned by these guys because they care about uh, winning. They care about doing it right uh, without shortcuts. Um, they understand the relationship between your 
business organization, your basketball organization can be really critical to that. Um, and, you know, I think at the time the Warriors were, were a pretty, um, pretty, pretty <laughs> not well-respected franchise, especially in the NBA. And I think they need, they felt I could add or help them find a path toward, you know, really establishing credibility in the league, uh, especially on the business side. And, and, you know, we just hit it off personally. So it, it, we went out to dinner that night and at the end of the night, they said, you know, if you want the job, like, let's do it. And so it was, uh, it was also different for me because it was the very first time that I, would, I had to think, I hadn't even thought about it until I got there. This is the first time I've ever been interviewed for a job where my, you know, personal lifestyle is on the table that everybody knows. No one's ever, no, I've never been in that situation before. And I think, I think we were 20 minutes into our conversation before one of them. I don't remember which one asked. So, um, hey, that, that New York Times story, like how, how has that worked out for you? And so that, that kind of told me all I needed to know about who they were and, and uh, whether I'd be comfortable working for them. Well, your time there, they, they certainly won a lot of awards. Obviously, the getting into the NBA Finals five times, winning three rings, and probably with a, if the, the ball of luck had bounced a little bit one way, you might have had a fourth. Um, I just want to read them off real quick. Best analytics organization in 2016 at the MIT Sloan Conference. Uh, twice voted sports team of the year by Sports Business Journal in 2014 and 2016. Franchise of the decade by Sports Business Journal in 2019. Um, and Joe Lacobe once was quoted as saying uh, the team was light years ahead of every other team, which which got him Christmas cards from every other you know owner. But but what are the keys since you've been there? What are the keys that will enable them to keep competing at an elite level? Well, they're they're incredibly competitive is number one. Um, we had to establish a financial base to allow us to be competitive. So that was the reason for building a new arena uh, in San Francisco. We had, we played in a wonderful, uh, a place with wonderful atmosphere in Oracle Arena in Oakland, but uh, that building was built before Madison Square Garden and it was the oldest building in the NBA. It didn't, didn't, wasn't gonna be an economic engine for us to be able to afford to be competitive on a year in year out basis. So, uh, you know, I think they have the management style that's, that, that works, which is you try to hire the best people and let them do their jobs, be there and available and supportive, but not be making the decisions every day. Um, and I think allowed us to assemble both on the business and basketball side of staff that I, we, we fashion ourselves out of the San Antonio Spurs. You know, we look at the Spurs and say, look at the longevity of their success. They've had such sustained success for so long. Like that's what we want to be. We're not, we're not there. We don't deserve to be in that class yet, but that's what we aspire to be. And, and I think we have the, all the building blocks in place to do that. We have the economic wherewithal to do it, the market that we're in, uh, the building that we've built. Um, and I do always remind Joe and Peter that uh, if someone asks me uh, for a little advice about how to be successful in buying a new team and uh, how to be successful in the Warriors, I do say, you know, I, I, I would I would recommend that you buy a team that already has Stephen Curry on the roster <laughs> because your, your chances for success will be greatly enhanced. You know, one of the, one of the great accomplishments you have is is building that Chase Center. What was your vision for it? Because it wasn't just, a, it was obviously for the basketball team, but it's not, a basketball team can't play in there every night. So what what's your bigger vision for what that building does for the city, for, you know, artists and everything? Well, if you're familiar with the project, it's really, I think, kind of a poster uh, for kind of what these projects have to look like in the future. One, we're in the Bay Area, so you know public funding was not ever going to be available. So this two billion dollar project was completely privately financed. Uh, it includes two office buildings, four hundred fifty thousand dollars of office space, a hundred thousand square feet of mostly restaurant retail, a beautiful five acre plaza, a park across the street, and then the arena. So it's really a little city in and of itself. It's a destination in San Francisco, in addition, whether or not you're going to a concert or a basketball game. So um, I think, unfortunately, six months after we opened, we closed and we've actually been closed more than we've been open. Right. So looking forward to next season when really kind of the, the promise will be in full bloom there. We'll, we'll get to see everything this is going to be, but it it's going to be a, a just a real city gem, a real city asset. And, and also 
economically enable us, as I said before, I think to be able to afford to compete for championships for as far in the future as I can see. You know, you mentioned Stephen Curry. Um, how's, he's certainly special on the floor, but I think you have a greater appreciation of what he's like off the floor, community and things. You know, can you elaborate on those things? Better than he looks, you know, that's all I can say. You know, he projects, I think, such a wonderful image playing the game, his joy in playing the game, how he plays the game. Uh, but, off, you know, he's just he's just a very he's a unicorn. He's very special in terms of how he lives his life, what he is as a father and a parent, what he is as a son, uh, how he feels about the position that he's in and what it enables him to do in the community. And, and it's just he never disappoints. I just I've never been around another athlete like this that they he always does the right thing and 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 most times the unexpected right thing. Uh, and that's just, it's just who he is. It's, uh, you know, he's now played for the same team longer than any other team, any other player in the NBA. And, you know, hopefully we'll be saying that for the balance of his career, but he's, he's special. Um, the pandemic brought two seasons that no one could have imagined or had any experience dealing with. Um, what steps did you take with the Warriors to deal with it with all your employees? Because now all of a sudden, everybody's missing that human contact that you come in the office every day, you talk with people, you get connected, and now the connection's gone. What did, what did you do? I know teams all dealt with it differently, but how did you try and solve that? Well, I, I was a pessimist at the outset. I couldn't believe we could send 500 people home and keep our culture and our business going in a way that would be effective. And I'm, I'm here to tell you I was dead wrong. Uh, you know, 50,000 video uh, conferences later, video wow. meetings later, uh, it works. Um, you know, what we did was feel like we needed to stay connected. I started a daily email uh, when it started. I didn't know I'd be doing it for 15 months, uh, you know, and, and I just finished the one for today that shares some of my experiences with our staff, invite some other people to write. We also allowed staff members who wanted to write to talk about the personal experiences, especially through Black Lives Matter and the, and the terrible violence in our, our Asian community. And let, let employees tell their personal stories, which has, I think, brought us closer as an organization. Tons of town halls, tons of guest speakers, all of that kind of thing. And I'm really proud of, of how we've hung together. That said, I'm really looking forward to us getting back into our offices because right. I think, you know, in the entertainment business, sports business, there's, there's a, there are intangibles that come from face-to-face -face interaction, chance interactions, spontaneous discussions and that don't have to be scheduled a day in advance. Uh, and I'm looking forward to a more flexible work style, but also getting back to an environment where we can get energy off of that, that kind of face-to-face -face interaction with our coworkers. Um, in 2018, you were inducted into the Naismith Hall of Fame. Uh, looking back to that first career break you had as a ball boy, uh, did you ever imagine that you would have to sit down and prepare a speech for your entrance and induction? Well, Dave, you know, guys like me don't get in the Hall of Fame, right? The guys in suits don't get in the Hall of Fame. That's that's really for players or coaches. So, you know, it, it was the most unexpected and most humbling thing that's ever happened in my life. And and frankly, getting on that stage was, was this, maybe the scariest thing in my life. You know, I've got David Stern and, and Bill Russell on the stage to one side, and I've got some other dear, you know, Lenny Wilkins and others on the, on the stage to the other side. So it it's just it's just such a blessing and I'm so grateful for having had the experience, but, uh, but never ever in the wildest, you know, my wildest imagination would I have ever dreamt that. So now you've decided to retire after helping raise the value of the Warriors to somewhere in the, I don't know, 4 billion range, depending on who's doing the valuation. What's another couple hundred million here or there. Um, what would you like to do, Rick? Any challenges left or just the joy of sleeping in late without having to get up for a meeting or something? Yeah, you know, after 46 years of kind of being in this, this treadmill uh, environment that we're all part of in the NBA, it, you, know, they're, they're, you know, I'd like to use my passport a little bit more, but I'm already finding myself inevitably, you know, kind of looking around the corner to see if there's a passion project or two that, uh, that I could be helpful in, in bringing to life. So I, I, I want to stay engaged. I want to stay uh, 
active. Uh, I want to use the experience that I've had to deploy it somehow in something that I, you know, can can see some personal value from. And and uh, I'm really excited. I can't get the smile off my face. <laughs> um, looking back with the benefit of hindsight, is there anything you would change or see now as a missed opportunity? Might have been with one of the teams or the league office. Anything you wanted to get done that you didn't? I know it sounds crazy, but I don't think I would change any part of the journey. It didn't, doesn't mean it didn't all go well. It just right, means sure. that every experience was additive to, to, to my overall life. So I, you know, I don't, I, 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 it sound, I can't come up with one, you know, it's for a moment that I wish we'd done differently or I'd done differently. It, uh, it, it's been an amazing ride and one that uh, I look back on and kind of pinch myself every morning. Um, so many accomplishments that you have. Can you can you think of one that you're most proud of? And I know that's a tough question sometimes because there's so many to choose from. Is there one that really stands out a little above the others? Well, uh, personally, you know, the induction into the hall, and then and then getting asked, you know, another thing you never imagined happening. I went to the University of Washington and got asked to deliver the commencement address uh, to 40,000 people in Husky Stadium a couple of years ago. And those are, you know, for me, that was like a, a, an unimaginable opportunity as well. Uh, Career-wise, you know, I, I think um, being in the championship parade in Oakland in 2015 and looking out at a sea of joy, unlike anything I've ever experienced before from people who, you know, have been loyal fans of the team for so many years without ever experiencing that kind of success. You know, for me personally, was to be a part of bringing that to to the community. I think was probably uh, probably a high point. I have one last question for you. What do you What do you think were the keys to your success? <laughs> um, you know, I think I've been preaching this a little bit to my staff uh, the last last month as I'm trying to impart a little wisdom. You know, I think every interaction you have every day is an opportunity to uh, to do something good and supportive for people, right? And I think people who approach every little interaction that they have in a way to try to make it a positive experience, um, that comes around to reward you in ways that you can't ever imagine in the moment. And the, and the converse is true too. If you choose not to treat people in a great way, that's gonna come back uh, to, to harm you in the future. And just, I think, you know, probably my own personal style just to try to try to take something of value and to to impart something of value in every interaction uh, that you have business or personal you know it seems to be a pretty good formula for me thanks to my guest hall of fame executive rick welts although rick is retiring after an incredible run something tells me we haven't seen or heard the last of him I'd also like to thank PR legend Raymond Ritter of the Golden State Warriors and his staff for their help in coordinating Rick's appearance. Thanks also to our producer, Bruce Bernstein, and to our editor, Kristen Woolley. We hope you'll check out all of our Pure Hoops media shows. Mike Wise has a new podcast each Monday, and his current guest is ESPN's NFL reporter, Adam Schefter, a huge basketball fan. Catch and Shoot 2.0 is here every Wednesday with great NBA and college hoop talk. Buckets, boards, and blocks with Monica McNutt and King McClure drops every Thursday. And Bulls OG BJ Armstrong joins Eric Newman with the Pure Hoops podcast every Friday. We also have a lot of great interviews and fun exchanges on our YouTube channel. Go to YouTube and search Pure Hoops Media. We'll see you next time. I'm Dave Wall. Dave's Front Office. With your host, Dave Wool, is a production of Pure Hoops Media. Okay.